Welcome to the Campus Christian Fellowship Podcast for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa. All right, so tonight um, we're going to be going through 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Uh, we're going to be covering a couple verses um, from there, but I kind of wanted to like hit upon the ones that are, let's call them the most controversial, let's call them the most maybe even used out of 1 Corinthians, or I should say misused out of 1 Corinthians. Again, our, our theme for 1 Corinthians is that of a new lens, that what Paul does is he applies the gospel lens to each part of, of the, each one of the issues that the Corinthian church is facing. So he says, here's your problem. Let's look at it through the lens of the gospel and let's see what Jesus is speaking into this problem. And so that's what we're doing tonight with all these different issues and things that happen within 1 Corinthians. And tonight uh, we're, we're talking about sex um, because there's sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. Uh, it actually starts off, let me just kind of give you a little bit of background. Um, Paul starts off kind of taking the church to task because they have this incident where essentially there's a guy who's decided that he should sleep with his father's wife. Um, it doesn't say that it's his mom, so I'm assuming there's like, it's a stepmother, which is still profoundly icky, and I think everyone across time recognizes that that's icky. Um, except the Corinthian church, for whatever reason, it doesn't give all the other context or things that are happening with this relationship, but the Corinthian church is celebrating that this guy has taken away his father's wife. And Paul's like, guys, that's wrong. People shouldn't be doing that. Like, even the culture around you that has all kinds of problems with sexual immorality realizes that this is wrong. So clearly, this is wrong. You guys should change some things about that. But in the process of talking about that, he kind of also brings up some other issues. And then there's this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, which is one of those ones, like I said, that is maybe the most often misused out of 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So maybe you've seen this text on a sign. Uh, Maybe you've heard it yelled at someone and being told that they're going to hell because of this set of verses. But there's some problems with that. Um, which, by the way, I'd say this is most often used to condemn homosexuality and say that members of the LGBT community are going to hell, even though there's a whole lot of other people on that list that, according to that interpretation, are also going to hell. Yet we don't seem to emphasize those when we put them on signs, when we yell them at people. We kind of just stick to this one thing that really wants to be focused on. One set of the problems. Another problem is they're missing out on the context of where this verse occurs, of what's going on, the other verses that are around it within 1 Corinthians. And I also kind of want to point out, not inherit the kingdom of God, I don't think that phrase equals go to hell. Because there's something about the kingdom of God that we have this mistaken assumption about. That the kingdom of God is only about this future eventuality known as heaven. Sometimes this phrase is also referred to as the kingdom of heaven, depending on the writer. They'll say kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. But Jesus, when he came to earth, he ushered in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. 
It's when he comes on earth, it's one of the first things he begins preaching is the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's now. And if it was now when Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, I think it's still now. Now. So the phrase inherit the kingdom of God, I, I think might actually be referring to something a little bit more here and now than this eternal destination heaven thing. I, I don't want to say that I don't believe in heaven or I don't believe in hell. That's not what I'm saying with this. But what I am saying is I'm not sure if this passage is talking about someone's eternal destination when it makes this statement. But I'm going to come back around to that because there's some other things that I kind of want to clarify and help out. Let's add a little bit of context, like looking at verse 11, the verse that goes right after this, where Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11 shows that, that I think this passage is actually trying to serve as a reminder of the grace that the Corinthians have received. It's not being used as a passage to preach condemnation on a group of people, but to remind a group of people of the grace that they received in Christ. So using it as a passage of condemnation is probably the opposite of the intent of Paul in writing this. He wanted to show and share grace with people, not condemnation. And then we can also add in a little bit more context, like just the chapter before in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So this is closing out that passage where he talks about the sexually immoral person within the church. And some of his advice was, you should cast him out of your fellowship and then have that. And hopefully he'll learn from his lesson. Hopefully he'll want to come back. He'll change his ways, those kind of things. It's a way to address a sin issue with inside of the church. And he says, that's like the decision that you're supposed to make. That's the thing that you're supposed to do. But he says, if you were to completely stop associating with those who are sexually immoral or sinful or anything like that, that are outside of the church, then like you don't get to share Jesus with people. And that's not your job. Your job is to share Jesus with those people and not to judge them. And so that's when he says here, what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? That also means that then using 6, 9, and 10 to judge people outside of the church is going directly against what Paul just said the chapter before. We're not supposed to be judging those outside of the church. We, we do have some freedom to do that inside of the church, but not outside. And that's how that verse is most often used. And, and that also reminds us then that 9 through 11 that passage that talks about grace, is written to people inside of the church. The point of it is, I, again, I think to specifically say, this is what grace looks like. You guys had all of these sin issues before, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, you have grace. So there's still a question, though, of why does the Bible have the standard that it does for our morality? Why does God care? Why do we have to keep this moral, sexual ethic that the Bible describes? Well, we're going to get there, but this comes from, I think, the fact that God calls us to be holy. Um, and so I'm going to pull some verses from 1 Peter, which I know is not the book that we are studying this semester, 
Um, but I think it's still a really good book to study. And so I think these verses have some good things to say in relation to this and will help us transition to our next text. Um, so 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh, and a big point of emphasis, the word holy, sometimes we... Define it as being perfect, which is a really lousy translation, definition. To be holy means to be set apart. Okay, and then 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, same book, just the next chapter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. By the way, this is one of like those passages that just kind of gets me like excited. Like I always, as I'm reading it, I just kind of like feel this like energy that's just like, oh man, like this is the kind of stuff that we have like with God in us and everything like that. Um, but the point that Peter's making with these passages is that our call is to be holy, our call is to be set apart, and that we are a priesthood. We are God's people, and as such, we are to be a priesthood. So the question then is. Well, what does it mean to be a priest? And this is not Catholic Church priest. We're actually going to go back way, way further than that to nation of Israel priest because that's the foundations for what it looks like to be a priest. And not only that, um, we're going to go to the book of Leviticus and I think that's a solid place to go because that first, first Peter, verse 16 there, that you shall be holy for I am holy is in quotes because Peter's quoting the book of Leviticus there. So that's one of the reasons why we're going to Leviticus. Also because Leviticus is like the guidebook for how to be a priest. It's, it's actually really cool stuff, even though Leviticus is maybe a book you haven't read in a while or heard of. All right, so what's gonna, let's jump into Leviticus. And I'm just going to read from you 18, 1 to 5, because I think this gives a nice summary for the things that we're going to talk to. But in some ways, I'm giving like a five-minute survey of the entire book of Leviticus. So hold on to your hats and maybe other things. It's going to be fun. All right. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This kind of introduces that section that gives a lot of laws, and these are the ways that the priests are supposed to live. These are the ways that the people of Israel are supposed to live. Because the point of Leviticus, like I said, is this is what it means to be a priest. These are the roles, these are the responsibilities, these are the duties, these are the things that govern the life of a priest. So let's just kind of lay out what's the four primary roles of a priest. Blue is the color of priests, and they wear that almost exclusively to stand out, to be noticed that they are priests. Blue is also one of those colors that's actually fairly expensive in ancient time. It's a harder uh, clothing dye to have. Blue is not as much of a naturally occurring color. Maybe you'll notice that when you go outside, it's harder to find blue. Um, so it's a more difficult color to get in clothing. And so they said priests are going to stand out. They're going to have these kind of crazy robes. Not only that, but they were supposed to wear those like full robes as they're doing their work. And if you don't know anything about ancient Israel, it's kind of the desert. 
which kind of seems like a crazy place to wear that much robes, but that's what you do as a priest. You stand out. You're marked as different. One of the primary roles of a, of a priest is to put God on display. And so they would dress differently. They would perform uh, in, in the worship services. They would perform the sacraments. They would live differently. They had rules that they were supposed to live by, and they were supposed to be extra certain to keep them because they were supposed to be set apart so that people would see them as different. And by the, seeing them as different, would recognize and remember that God is different. God is set apart. God is holy. Another thing they did was help people navigate their atonement. So that's kind of a fancy way of saying doing the animal sacrifice thing. Um, there's a lot that Leviticus says about that, but we don't have time to break all that down, and we don't really do it anymore, so let's move on to the next thing. We do help people navigate their atonement, by the way. Um, we point them to Jesus, which is how they navigate their atonement now. We don't do animal sacrifices. Still a role for priests, just different looking. They intercede on behalf of others. Uh, the priest, his role was to stand in the gap between God and man. And sometimes that meant that he would bring messages from God and give them to, to the people, but that also meant that he would stand before God and plead on behalf of the people to remind God of the sacrifices that they've performed for their atonement, to remind God of his mercy and his, and his justice and what that looks like to be on display. And so the priest stands between God and people and helps in both directions. And he's also to distribute resources to those in need. There's that tithe that's given to the sanctuary, to the temple, and the priest helps with the distribution of that to make sure the needs of the poor are met. So the Levites are the group that become the priests uh, uh, for Israel. That they're that specific tribe, becomes Israel's priestly class. But there's a thing about Scripture where Israel is themselves as a nation called to be a nation of priests. Yes, they do have a specific tribe that represents priesthood to them and is supposed to be their priests, but they in turn are called to be the priests for the nations. So the priests exist within Israel to remind Israel what a priest is supposed to look like so that then they can carry out and live their lives like that and then they're supposed to be those priests to the rest of the world. So the world sees that's what a priest looks like. Their God is different. What's the deal with that? And the idea is for the world to come to God through the nation of Israel, being their priest, interceding on behalf of the nations, helping them to navigate their atonement, putting God on display and then those first Peter passages that we talked to were also talking about how Christians are brought into that. We're brought into the nation of Israel through the blood of Christ, where Paul uses the phrase engrafted because he has this really cool uh, metaphor with, with vines and, and on a vineyard and how we're, we're grafted in and we become part of that fruit-producing vineyard that is the nation of Israel. As Christians, we're a part of this, which means that it's also our responsibility to be priests. That's why in 1 Peter he talks about us being uh, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That is us. So that's why we need to know what it means to be a priest. Um, like I said, all these roles still, still in need in our modern times. We still need to put God on display by the way we live our lives, by a biblical moral code, um, to show that, that we're different from the world around us, to show that God 
is different. We need to help people navigate their atonement. Like I said, tell them about Jesus. We need to intercede on behalf of others. Uh, and I'm going to break that into even more detail later on. And we need to help those in need. So there's a lot of rules that are detailed within Leviticus and other places uh, and the call of, of priests to put God on display. And, and some of them uh, are about sexual practices. And, and many of those rules um, have logical, reasonable, uh, there's some sanitary reasons for why those rules are in, a, in, in place. Um, and there are positive results for those that follow the rules. So sometimes people will say, like, the reason we have this moral code, the reason that we follow these things, the reason that the rules in Leviticus existed is so that God's people could thrive and they would be more sanitary and they would uh, have these better practices and they would do these things which cause there to be less, like, disease and death and problems and, and you know, that kind of stuff. And while there is some truth in that, it overlooks what I think is the purpose of those rules, which is, again, to help the priests and Israel look different, to be set apart from the culture around them. Again, it points to the fact that they are different because their God is different. So, so when these standards are repeated in the New Testament, um, which not all those rules are, that are in Leviticus are repeated in the New Testament and say, like, all God's people should do this. Um, that's why I uh, eat bacon. Uh, I don't follow kosher laws because I don't have to. Um, that's part of the engrafting, which there are some things that um, fell apart. And there's some cultural reasons for that. There's some other reasons for that. That's also why I don't dress like a priest. Um, I am wearing blue tonight, but not a crazy ornate blue robe that would be probably kind of warm in, in this in summer-ish time. Sometimes the standards are repeated in the New Testament. And when, when those standards are repeated, it's a call for priests, for Christians, for us, to be different in those ways in order to put God on display. That's why there's a call for a different moral standard in Scripture. To put God on display. We are to be set apart. We are to be holy like God is set apart, like God is holy. And then the other role of a priest is to be mindful. Another thing that we're supposed to, to keep in mind, that we're supposed to be mindful of, is the role that a priest has in interceding on the behalf of others. It's that fourth role, or sorry, that third role that we have. So not just the messenger of God that reminds people of his standards, but also one who pleads on the behalf of those who fall short. And in case you're wondering what this priestly role looks like, it looks like Abraham. Um, when he's asking God, there's some good people in Sodom. Extend your mercy. Save them. Would you destroy an entire city if there are even ten good people in it? It's, it's the role that Moses takes on Mount Sinai after there's the whole incident with the golden calf and there's all this people and then like God like starts pouring out his wrath and Moses is like, God, stop. These are your people. Are they just going to say God brought them to the desert to destroy them? Or are they going to see God's love and mercy in this moment if you stop? And it's the role that Jesus takes on the cross, not just with his death, but also when he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the priestly role that we should have. Not to be shouting at others that they're in judgment for, this, for their sin, but to be telling them of God's grace while also asking for God to overwhelm them with his mercy so they may know his love as we do and enter into that love with us. So my advice is when you hear this controversial passage of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, being yelled at, at passersby on campus or simply as a reference on a sign saying such and such go, goes to hell. 
Remind yourself that this passage is a call to the church. A call to remember the grace they've received and to be part of the family of God. And, and that your role as a priest is to be different. And also to plead on behalf of any who will not inherit the kingdom. And also, if you have the opportunity to share the grace with the ones who are doing the yelling and sign holding, um, attempt to do so compassionately. Um, because I think their behavior um, likely puts them on that list in verses 9 and 10 as well. There's a lot of complicated stuff that goes with trying to follow what Scripture says, and it can be hard to judge and hard to interpret at times. Um, I've, I've mentioned before that not only are we podcasting stuff on Tuesday nights, but occasionally we're going to have extra material. And during our discussion questions, there's going to be a time for you to be like, that was a good talk, or maybe you didn't think it was a good talk. You can say that. It's fine. I won't be offended. Um, but I want to know more about like this specific issue, or like I've heard this thing come up, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, so kind of talk about that in your discussion groups. Our student leaders will kind of make notes, get them back to me, and I'm going to try to address some of those things in an additional podcast um, that I hope to get out before the end of the month. Um, so I'm going to try to address some more of the stuff in this issue and, and sexual immorality and of what the Bible says about it. And then uh, we'll try to even give some more clarity and some more help as, as uh, maybe you have some interesting discussions in classes or, or with, with your peers about it. Hey, thanks for checking us out and spending some time with us this week. Quick reminder, if you're a student at Iowa State, University of Northern Iowa, or University of Iowa, we would love to connect you with a campus minister. So reach out to ccf.uiowa at gmail.com, and we will make sure we get you connected. Be sure to specify your school in an email. Additionally, if you have questions about anything you've heard today or anything that's on your mind, we would love a chance to answer that here anonymously. So you can also just drop a line there. Again, that is ccf.uiowa at gmail.com. We hope Hope you have a great week and please know that we are praying for you.